If you want to be guaranteed success, go to HVAC school and they'll tell you exactly how to repair HVAC and you'll have a secure job. And it's great. Thank goodness for HVAC people or plumbers or whatever, where they know how this is done. What you're trying to do is impossible. (laughs) What you're trying to do has no guarantees to it. And so you can't necessarily dismiss an idea or a way of doing things based upon the fact that some people are going to do it and, and not succeed. Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone looking to think deeper and work smarter. In every episode, I speak with makers, thinkers, and innovators to help you get more out of life. This week, I'm speaking with David Kadavi. He is a serial author. He's written more books than I have time to list in this short introduction. But I think some of the headliners are his most recent book, Mind Management, Not Time Management. And he also wrote The Heart to Start and Design for Hackers. So David is incredibly prolific as a writer. I think I first came across him on Twitter and I'd highly recommend you follow him just because you can tell he puts so much intentionality and original thought into all the content that he puts out. And that's really everything that I try to do in the content that I create. So we were really kindred spirits in that way. But we also talked a lot about productivity. We talked about writing. We talked about content creation, about how David is able to consistently come up with new ideas. I think this was a really, really good podcast. And I probably learned just as much as anyone who would listening to this. I think this is probably one of my favorite conversations with someone who is actively in the field, creating things on an incredibly consistent basis. So if you have it in mind to be prolific at anything at some point in your life, at some point in your career, whether it's writing or cooking or whatever it is that you want to do, I think David is the person you should listen to. You can find David on Twitter at Kadavi, and you can get the full show notes and transcript at theknowledge.io. And while you're there, you should definitely subscribe to my newsletter. Every week, I share some of the best insights and ideas that I come across from psychology, philosophy, business, and productivity. So if you want to read the best that I have to share, you can go to newsletter.theknowledge.io and subscribe. So I know you're going to love this episode. And if you do, please don't forget to share it with a friend. And also don't forget to leave a review because it helps us tremendously to reach other people just like you. So... One of my core thesis with this podcast and just in general is that I think I wrote about this a while ago in my newsletter is this idea that in retrospect, it's really easy to draw a very clear narrative of exactly the way all of the, the right things struck. And this is the point at which I had this revelation and this is where everything came together because you already know how the story ends. And so it's easy to draw the narrative backwards. But I think very often what we miss in that is a lot of the color along the way and the times where you didn't necessarily have that certainty of exactly how things would turn out and exactly where things would go. So I very often like to maybe go back in time and ask, like, what was some of the earliest? So I know that you worked in design originally, and that's what you studied at university. But I wonder, is that something that you always wanted to do? And and where did that original desire come from as well? Sometime when I was a young child, I really started to enjoy drawing. If I go to that narrative fallacy thing, I can certainly say that there were signs. Maybe I had some sort of natural talent with that. My mother was very good at it. I recall there was a time when I was in kindergarten and we had all painted elephants and we were standing in line to go out to recess. 
and a bunch of kids kept up pointing at one of the elephants and that was on the wall and saying, Oh, that's mine. That's no, the other one said, no, that's mine. And I was standing back there. I'm like, Oh, that's actually mine. So, but I also recall not thinking that I was very good at drawing. So I worked at it and became very good at drawing. And I really enjoyed to draw. I enjoyed art. And so when it came time to go to college, I grew up in a pretty fiscally conservative family where there was a value of, oh, you should get a job. You should get a secure job. And fortunately, they uh, you know, supported my decision to study whatever I wanted in college. But with the caveat, like, well, if you study art or even graphic design, like you're not going to ever make more than like $30,000 a year. And there was this thing called... Uh, I think it was it was called commercial art or visual communications. I think it was called commercial art is what it was called at the college that I first went to in the middle of Nebraska. And I thought, well, okay, that's where I get to draw things and get paid for it, which literally that's illustration, but I wasn't very smart. And so that's what I did. And I just sort of kind of stuck with that through line, which essentially was graphic design. And I came to love it. I came to really get fascinated with typography and the sort of art and science of letters and of communicating something through the sizing and spacing and placement of things, communicating visually in that way and observing. I did have a lot of drawing to do that degree, realizing if you look at objects in the world, they don't have outlines on them. And most of us, when we draw something, we draw the outlines. But if you want to draw something that looks like something, you have to figure out how to not draw the outlines. And so I think, again, narrative fallacy, I think I learned a lot of power of observation through that. And then I ended up working as a designer. And I was pretty successful at that. There was There's a magazine called Communication Arts that in college, all any of us wanted to do was sometime in our careers getting a communication arts magazine. And through a series of kind of lucky breaks, I, on my first big project as a professional, got into that magazine. And it was a strange experience because I had thought that that was all that I ever wanted to accomplish. But once I had accomplished it, I realized it was quite meaningless to win a design award. And... I grew to not really enjoy, I guess, the whole idea of you have a client, you're trying to speak about this objective thing, and it's not always easy to explain why it is you're doing what you're doing. I kind of had my way of doing things, my own mental models for how I designed. And so when I got the opportunity to write my first book, Design for Hackers, I sort of thought to myself, oh, this is great. I could just say the way that I think that design works. And then I don't have to design anymore. Everybody else can just do it themselves. And that's kind of what I did. And then I uh, have gotten interested in other things along the way. And I don't think about design a lot these days. Yeah, I find that's a really interesting shift. And I want to ask you about that in a second. But to go back a step, I'm really interested to know you even, okay, so you got this book deal. And I think I know that you were doing some blogging already before that. So what was the intention behind starting that blogging? And how did those two things start to come together? I started my blog on 
May 31st, 2004. I was living and working in Omaha, Nebraska, which was the town that I had grown up in that I thought was kind of a boring, soulless place that I didn't want to be. And I had sort of reluctantly returned there after college, after trying to find work around the country, just wanted to go to any big city, San Francisco, Seattle, Minneapolis, (laughs) Chicago, and none of them would have me. And being a graphic design graduate wasn't a hot commodity in, in 2002. And so I had, you know, chatting with the tech guy at the architecture firm that I worked at, we would talk about blogs and there were certain blogs that we were reading, Douglas Bowman or Jason Santa Maria's blog or uh, 43 Folders, a productivity blog by Merlin Mann all about GTD. We talked about all those things and I had... I felt very intimidated by these blogs that I saw because they were all very sophisticated looking and I wanted a little bit of a playground to work a little bit more on web design. I had dabbled in it. It wasn't a concentration in my degree in in school, but I had, you know, probably done my first HTML coding in like 1996, just kind of looking under the hood of the AOL web builder thing that I had. And what in a place to have a playground to to work on that. And I had previously had, Academy.net had previously been a Flash toy box. Flash being this sort of animation uh, thing that I don't think anybody even uses now, but I would make these different toys and write uh, action script as it was to just play around with different things. And that was my playground for Flash, but now I wanted a playground for like HTML and CSS and I think the tech guy had started a blog maybe, and he had maybe used Blogger. And I found Blogger and I thought, oh, well, this is cool. Like everything, it look, all these blogs look so intimidating and sophisticated, but all I have to do is just create one and it, it'll do all this for me. I was surprised. Oh, they didn't, they didn't all build that calendar widget that used to be on all the blogs on the sidebar or whatever. They didn't build that from scratch. There was like a, a thing that they could just take out of the box to do that because I mean even when I had studied abroad and uh, wanted to share my photos online in 2001 I had to like use some tool to create static html pages with my photos on them so I could like share them with my parents and so this this idea that there was this you could make something that looked like that with hardly any work was incredible to me and so I sort of sat down and wrote this little paragraph basically saying everything I was feeling. You can still find it if you search for my first blog on academy.net. And I'm basically saying, you know, I don't want to get into a a perfection paralysis here. I do have a tendency to want to know all the details about something before I jump into it. I'm just going to barf this out and clean it up later. And that's what I did. I turned that, I created my own blogger template looking at their code and then I switched eventually, what was it, movable type, I think, and then later to WordPress. And now I've been on WordPress for a long time. And I've done a few different redesigns. The last one I did, I think, was like, might have been 2000, might have been 2013. And I don't 
plan to redesign really ever. Not that my blog doesn't need a redesign, but I am far more interested in the words now. And I almost kind of like the fact, I don't don't personally think that it looks super dated. The homepage currently could probably use some work, but I almost like anti-signaling of not having this blog that's like, got a big splash image of me that I had a professional photographer take where I'm like acting all candid or something. It's just words. Like there's just words there and you either like the words or you don't like the words. And I try to do everything I can in the design to get out of the way. So you don't have to use like the reading mode on your browser to actually read the words that are on the website, which is really just about. And so that's how Academy.net became the life that was 18 years ago. Wow. That's really cool. I I find it really interesting that you've always been at this intersection of maybe curiosity and creativity. I think actually, funnily enough, a lot of what you were saying sounded very similar to my background as well. So it really rung true for me because I think my first, yeah, being on the internet, probably one of the first things I learned was design. And that is pretty much what started my whole career and has led to everything else that has my curiosity has taken me. I learned design, then you start maybe designing some websites and being on Blogger, a lot of those tours back in the early 2000s as well. And there was like Dreamweaver, I think maybe slightly later on in the mid 2000s or so. Dreamweaver, yeah. So, you know, yeah. So, I mean, funnily enough, even just as you were talking, I was just thinking about how crazy it is like how the technology exploded literally between i'm thinking you you mentioned 2001 not being able to have like photo sharing websites and i'm pretty sure by maybe 2004 or 2005 then there were like quite a few tools yeah Flickr, and there was quite a few things that suddenly you could do a lot of that stuff i was at the Flickr turns to birthday party in san francisco shortly after moving to california in two, I think that I moved to California in 2005 and this was shortly after that. So it must've been 2005. It was the Flickr turns to birthday party. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of people who use the internet a lot who don't even know what Flickr is. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Especially at this point, I think there's so many like antecedents of platforms that we have now, even Tumblr is starting to become something that people aren't fully cognizant of. So that's really interesting. But I'd love to know maybe, so so you started writing this blog and I know that even part of when you were writing your book, you were already partly in this productivity space where you're thinking about getting things done, things like that. And that was maybe a factor in, as you were writing that book, some of the things that you struggled with. So I'd love to maybe hear more about the, the process of writing that book and then how that led to you getting a lot more interested in the writing side of things rather than the design. Yeah. So I'm realizing that the the last question you asked me, you might've even asked me to tell you about how I got my first book deal. I'm not sure, but are we talking about the first book still? Because I haven't even gotten to that yet, I guess. Maybe there was two questions in one on that one, but I do go on tangents. So I wish I would have been more regular at writing on my blog from the beginning. I certainly was somebody who didn't believe in this idea of having a writing habit of making sure that I was constantly shipping writing. I kind of just waited to be inspired or to have an idea and I would write. 
And sometimes that would come in spurts where I was writing a couple in a week and sometimes months would go by and I wouldn't write anything. And then when I did finally get out of Nebraska and moved to Silicon Valley, I felt quite fulfilled in the work that I was doing for a time there and so didn't hardly write on my blog. But then I left Silicon Valley quite deliberately, job offers nipping at my tail, moved to Chicago wanted space to think and explore my own ideas and just to see what would come from that. And there came a period where I was applying to speak at South by Southwest. And I applied, I had wanted to speak at that conference since I had heard about it, you know, back in Nebraska in my great cubicle in 2003, I think was probably the first time I had heard of it. thought, wow, that'd be so cool to go to that conference be even cooler to speak at it. And I submitted one panel idea one year thinking, well, I probably won't get it because I can tell as I'm writing this proposal that I'm not quite qualified, but I'm at least learning the process. And that's exactly what happened. I don't even remember what that idea was that year. But then the following year, I pitched a friend of mine. I had this idea, well, maybe I will, I'll set up a panel of a few of my friends. I had started to have some friends who were getting pretty successful online and thought, well, I'm not a big success, but if I can get these people together, that would at least get me on stage. So I, I wrote a proposal to one of my friends to sort of send him a little pitch email. Within like 30 seconds, he writes back and says, sorry, I don't think this is for me. You know, I think it's good to have friends who are honest with you in that way. And I, but I felt awful. It felt like, oh, I just got, I've got nothing. What am I going to do? And I think the next day I went to the cafe near my house and sat out on the porch and sat at the picnic table and sort of thought, okay, well, let's, we need to come up with something. And there was this talk I had done at Bar Camp. If you know what Bar Camp is like this unconference thing. I had done a, a talk called Design for the Coder's Mind, where I'd done a short talk, basically, here's some basic design principles. I thought, huh, that's that's something. And I was thinking, well, I think the way that I would get a panel at South by Southwest would be I'd find a channel where I would get some web traffic for an article related to the topic that my panel or my talk would be about. Now, I had gotten decent at that period of time, at getting on the front page of Hacker News, various articles, maybe like WordPress optimization or... Uh, was that slightly, was that still difficult back then as it is now? I mean, now it's incredibly difficult. Okay. No, I, I have no idea how to do it now. But I also think it's a lot geekier now. And I also think, I don't know if it's just because I'm older, but I, I felt like the, I felt like it was, there was a little the people there were a little smarter back then. Like it was a smaller group of much smarter people, I think, than it is now. I mean, have you ever looked at like shit HN says, Twitter, and you just like see the stuff that people say in the comments and how dumb. Yeah, <laughs> I think people were actually, the people that were writing were actually also working in technology and building things and doing things. Whereas now I think there's a lot more spacious commentary in general where people are not also having to think about doing stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't doing things. I had left Silicon Valley. I had at least worked there, but I had left. I was literally just 
getting up every morning and going to my second bedroom that was an office and just like trying to come up with different stuff. And I had rented an office and I did a little bit of freelance work just to get by, but I was actively trying to come up with some sort of idea that would be something. And so I thought to myself, well, I've been pretty good at getting hack on Hacker News lately. So if it's designed for the coder's mind, and I thought, well, this isn't somehow that doesn't have quite the right ring to it. And I thought, whoa, 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 wait. Design for hackers. Hacker News is where I'm, I'll write an article and get on the front page and get some votes. And I'll call it Design for Hackers. And I thought, this is too good to be true. I look up on GoDaddy or whatever, and then like designforhackers.com is available. How has this not happened yet? Like, I might be able to do this. And so I start writing the proposal, and then I just pour everything I've got into this one blog post called Why You Don't Use Garamond on the Web. And it's all about how Garamond's this great font. It's quite incompatible with pixels on screens, which we don't we didn't have the retina technology that we do today, but the pixels on screen aren't necessarily that compatible with the subtle curves of a typeface like Garamond. And so I just poured everything I've, I had into that and got on the front page of Hacker News. And then at the bottom of the, maybe at the top and the bottom of the page, I had, hey, you know, if you like this content, vote for my panel at South by Southwest. And I got an email from Chris Webb at Wiley. And he says, ah, I like this idea of design for hackers, reverse engineering beauty. Have you thought about writing a book about this? I'd like to talk to you about that. Like, oh, why, yes, I have thought about. I knew I wanted to write a book, but I didn't know about what. I had like come up with different ideas, but that this was what I was kind of waiting for. And then, but I kept banging that drum. So I wrote a different, another post. Why Monet never used the color black and all that you could learn about color theory from the way that Monet used color and how you could use that in web design. And that got to the front page of Hacker News. And then I got an email from another publisher. I'm not going to name them. Anyway, I talked to these two publishers and Wiley seemed to have, seemed like the better option for me and talked to a couple agents. One of the agents I talked to is uh, Tim Ferriss's agent, Brian Hanselman. He was very kind. He spent an hour speaking to me. He wasn't taking new clients. I'm sure he would have been, but he wasn't interested in being my agent. But it was very nice to, it was very nice that he talked to me. And I remember him saying like, wow, this is happening really fast. Because it was weird to me because it was just seemed like, oh, this is easy, right? I didn't get the South by Southwest, but I got a book deal. And then once I had the book deal and had written most of the book, I got to speak at South by Southwest, for the book, based on the idea, based on the speaking slot that I did not get. So it's funny how, you know, you try to do one thing and another thing happens and it causes the original thing to happen sometimes. Yeah. And I think you've talked about this uh, before and it, it links very much, even in my mind, just as you say it, to uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about asymmetry and looking for asymmetric opportunities. And I think this is exactly that kind of opportunity where you could easily have just been trying to write normal blog posts and you can write hundreds of blog posts. I've written loads of blog posts. None of mine have been on Hacker News, as far as I'm aware. But you can just write lots of blog posts. But I think because you were trying to optimize for this particular stage, trying to get this panel at South by Southwest, maybe that 
changed in some ways, like how you wrote it and how you approached that entire process, which then led to this other opportunity as well. Yeah, I just didn't necessarily know it at the time, and I wasn't familiar with Nassim Taleb's work at the time, but it was it was a positive black swan, as he would describe it, as I was basically putting something out there into a place where there would be a lot of exposure and there'd be a lot of things that would happen. And I was very intentional about how I was going to try to accomplish this thing that I wanted to accomplish. But then this other thing happened, right? And but and that intentionality helped me focus what it was that I was writing about, how I was going to do it, and all of that. I do. I will say. I mean, it is. It, I feel like it's way harder now. I don't know how to get on the front page of Hacker News. I don't. I don't know how to even get thirty thousand views on a post. I don't know how to get thirty thousand views on a tweet. But I can sell twenty thousand books. So. If, Tell me that, how that works. I put a tweet out, it's free. I can't get 20,000 people to look at it, but I can put out a book and say, oh, this is $10 and I can get 20,000 people to buy it. How does that How does that work? I actually was just talking about this for my podcast. I was speaking with David Perel a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about how Mark Manson, the last time I spoke to Mark Manson and had him on my podcast, after we were done, I was like, hey man, if you got a second, like, do you have any advice? Like, how can I take my blogging and stuff to the next level he's like Ugh. you know it's just blogs are kind of done man it's just nobody's read all the traffic's down you know tim urban wait but why his traffic's down my traffic's down you know it's just i mean you're doing a podcast that's probably that's a good category to be in right now this was several years ago you just got to be in like a growth category or something and david perel's like I've heard Tim Urban say the same thing also that, that while well, he was fortunate that Facebook was really pushing blogs into people's feeds about in 2013 when he popped. And that's about the time that Mark Manson really popped as well, was that Facebook was all, they wanted to get people on their platform and they didn't mind sending people to blogs at the time. And I've heard Tim Urban say that he felt lucky that had happened at the time that he was doing it. But David Perel's stance when I spoke to him was like, well... I don't know. There's always some category, which I think maybe this is what Mark Manson was trying to say. There's always some category that's like on the way up. And right now that's Twitter threads. Maybe these guys are just kind of confused by it because the web has changed since when they were coming up and they're not as hungry as they once were. So they don't necessarily have the drive to like figure this out, which is something I think I certainly had at the time when I just wanted to stop freelancing wanted to start making some money and something that was mine that I had created. And I was just felt desperate to make that happen. And that was very motivating. And so as I say this today, as I make a comfortable living doing what I do, I don't have that same desperation to like try to figure it out. Yeah, I'm interested to know your thoughts on the whole, the hype around Twitter threads and popping off on Twitter, because I definitely have very mixed thoughts. Because on one hand, I genuinely feel, and, and I completely get what David Pearl is saying. I think, okay, let me flip what I was going to say. So on one hand, the part that I completely understand is Twitter started off as a microblogging website. So it does make sense that this is part of the, maybe it didn't start originally as that, but you know, that was part of the history where 
you know, that is kind of carrying on the legacy of blogging in some ways that it's meant to be microblogging. It was meant to be 140 characters. And that is in many ways part of the lineage where that part might not have caught off, but it certainly is now where a lot of people are now calling themselves writers and, and being able to think of themselves as writers because they write threads on Twitter. So I think there's that part of it, which makes me think this is perfectly valid. But then there's the other part of it where I see a lot of these threads, they all look exactly the same because a lot of people are just using these growth hacks to write just very formulaic tweets. And it is distressing <laughs> to me just because it feels like a lot of these people, not everyone, but there is certainly a very clear subset of people that do not care about like writing craft and it's more about writing for attention which is fine and valid because ultimately attention brings money and all the other things that you want but i think it is a very clear split or dichotomy and i think we had the same thing in blogging where you had a lot of people that wrote for example like technology blogs or just blog whether whether it was a personal blog or a blog about some domain of interest and then there was a whole ton of people which maybe became the majority in terms of the popular blogs that were writing seo optimized blogs and people that were just writing whatever was going to get the most clicks on google whether it makes sense or not whether you know it's read by humans or by ai it's just whatever is going to get the most attention so i think that is the the balance there so i'm interested to know what you think about that yeah it's uh it's puzzling to me it's very puzzling to me i cannot figure out twitter i've been on it for was it 15 years now since 2007 and when i started using twitter it was basically an alternative to dodgeball which was the predecessor to foursquare which was just you would send a text message to this one number saying that you were at this bar or whatever, and then it would text anybody who was your friends to let them know that you were there so they could just stop by. Really cool service when there's enough people around who are using it. And so when Twitter came out, I was like, oh, this is dodgeball. So I'm like, oh, I'm at uh, this bar, etc. And I think it was really just a couple of years started to realize, realize, okay, I'm an old man. I've been on the internet for a long time. And I'm not so insanely successful that I have nothing left to learn. Maybe, maybe I need to rethink this. And that was where I came to realize, okay, I need to be intentional about how I use Twitter. I used to get sort of offended that people would make a distinction between IRL in real life and online. And I don't anymore because the internet is not real life. It is a media environment that shapes a conception of reality that unfortunately most people buy into, but it is not real life. And what you choose to portray on whatever medium it is, whether that's Twitter or TikTok or whatever, may be representative of your real life, but it's you're curating it. You, you have to, you should choose wisely. And there is a way to play that game, I think is the realization that I came to. And so I've started looking very, very closely at every tweet. Like how many impressions is this getting? What's the engagement rate? What's the relationship between the engagement rate and the number of impressions I've got? How many likes have I gotten out of the number of impressions that I've got? And it is a mystery. It especially became a mystery like a year ago, they made a really hard change. I think that they are trying to make conversations happen. I, I swear, put a question mark, even put a statement and put a question mark at the end of your tweet, and it will get more impressions. And it's annoying because I find myself saying, well, 
I'm in Twitter jail right now. I'm, I've got 23,000 followers and everything I tweet has, is getting 500 impressions. I'm just going to ask for book recommendations. You ask for book recommendations, you'll get 5,000. You'll get 5,000 impressions. Just because Twitter is pushing it through the graph because other people have interacted with it and they have this conversations bias. I don't know whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Maybe everything that can be done with 280 characters has been done. Bad Banana killed it on 140 characters. He wrote the funniest tweets. I don't know how you could top what he did and you can't, can't really necessarily do the same thing. So maybe it's not a good idea what, what they're doing, but I do not have it down at all. Now, threads, I don't have down either. I've spent hours on threads and you put it out there and like nobody cares. But it's, I feel like there's either you have to be really homed in on a topic or you have to talk about something that's going to appeal to everybody perhaps. Because I did have one day where I said to myself, is this thing on? Is this even working? And so I just tweeted, I'll give $100 to one random person who retweets this within the next hour. And I'll just Venmo you $100. Just like, I'll invest $100 in finding out whether this thing even is on. And it's on. It works. If you give away $100, if you promise to give away $100, you will get uh, tons and tons of people telling you how generous you are. And, you know, you'll get a ton of impressions. And you will see that Twitter can work and you also get a bunch of DM from people. It's actually quite a depressing experience because there's a lot of people who really could use $100. But you can take it my word for it that if you give away $100, like it works. Okay, so it's possible to say something that is going to spread throughout the graph, but it has to be something that's so appealing that it's as universally appealing as something that costs as free $100. Now, on the other hand, I have a another Twitter account that's all about golf. I've got a little golf writing project that I'm doing. Uh, I've got maybe 700 followers on that golf account. I only tweet about golf. Anytime anything shows up my timeline that isn't about golf, I tell Twitter, I'm not interested in this. Don't show me this crap. And it is just very clear to the algorithm that this account is about golf. Don't show it anything else. And anything this account says, show it to anybody who's interested in golf. That's a nobody account. My personal account is verified. It's got the blue check mark that everybody thinks is so powerful. But this golf account often gets more impressions than my account with 23,000 followers. And so that tells you, like, it can either be so widely appealing as $100 or it can be very narrow as it can be about golf. And, and it'll be about a particular topic and you will kill it on about a particular topic. But that's not what I want from Twitter. I want to be able to have conversations about a wide variety of things. I want to be able to, let me be realistic. I like conversations, but it doesn't come, that's not the first thing that comes to mind when I want to tweet something. I want to tweet a statement or a thought that I've had and just sort of say it and put it out there. I, I should probably have more of a conversations bias on it. But I, I still learn things from Twitter, but I've had to sort of change what is my bar for success whether an idea I shared out there is successful or not. But the algorithm does not like a lot what I want to talk about. But I'm trying, always. Yeah, it's quite validating to hear you say that. I've, I've had a really interesting experience with Twitter. I've probably been on Twitter for something like 
Actually, no, probably, yeah, 10 years or so. And funnily enough, so the heyday of my Twitter days were the days where my name was not on it. It was completely anonymous. I used to work in corporate law and I literally just used Twitter to vent and to, <laughs> and to, you know, just manage things. And it was not a professional account. It was not anywhere I was expecting people to find me or anything like that. And I was just saying random things. And a lot of those might have been funny things. And so I would have tweets going viral quite regularly so i've had tweets i think probably the most popular maybe had i want to say five hundred thousand like retweets or something like that so i've had months and and this is the crazy Ooh. thing now because i speak i see i don't think i've ever had that <laughs> no i don't think a lot of people have and i'm saying that in a very fair way because i was speaking to someone that has over a hundred thousand uh, followers on Twitter and, and he has all the viral tweets, all the viral threads, and he, he's doing great on there. But I think he just had his best ever month and he had 31 million impressions. And I've had more than that, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And it's really interesting how the time at which I probably had my, the tweets with most impressions were when I had under 2000 followers. And I did not have, I mean, even now it's like, I don't know, 11, 12,000. But the point is that was most of my tweets then were geared towards entertainment and not intentionally. I wasn't like looking for an audience. I was just tweeting funny things or random things. Whereas now that I actually feel like I have something to say <laughs> or I'm actually intentionally trying to share things, but I definitely noticed as soon as I started pivoting to trying to tweet more like informational stuff, it cut pretty much in half i i even tweeted about it it was like i think oh in half yeah wow. so prior to that i i was averaging maybe about seven million impressions a month or something and it went half down to like three million and then now even to get one million a month is a struggle which is crazy because yeah it, it's a very it's the complete opposite of the trajectory of maybe your Sounds followers. like you had and, something. Yeah, <laughs> I should go back to being a potato account. <laughs> but I think, I, I actually think Twitter's a, a different place now. And I think the things just work a lot differently. But I, I even within that space, what I find interesting is, so there's a combination of, I don't know if you've come across like Sean Puri, for example, who writes, you know, often threads that might be informational, but they are through a lens of entertainment and he writes things in very entertaining ways so even though it's informational it's like entertaining and that goes viral but the other subset that i see a lot is very much in the theology of you know what you have like marketers that write stuff for marketers and they have this huge following because everyone wants to be the person that is saying the stuff and so i see a lot of people that are tweets about writing viral tweets and so if everyone that is following them or engaging with this stuff is are people that also want to have that exact same fame but it's almost i don't want to say a pyramid scheme but like what is the outcome outside of that like if you're not just writing about how to do this exact same thing where is the objective outside of that because i assume all of the people that are following those people want to tweet about other things other than how to get people to read your tweets yeah, it's self self referential. I don't know if it makes it. I mean, that, that's just. I think that's just the nature of electronic media is that the means of production are in the hands of everybody. The more that everybody's trying to be successful with the means of production, and so then to talk about how to be successful with the means of production becomes appealing to a wide number of people who happen to also 
be better than yet than the average person at the means of production. And so in a way, it's it's a way to attach to a number of different hubs that have lots of spokes coming out of them. And so it's a decent way to build an audience, I think. Yeah. I wonder where do you think books are going? Because, I mean, this is going to segue into talking more about your books and your writing. But I know you just mentioned Mark Manson and what he was saying about blogging and what's been happening with blogging, where a lot of people's viewerships are down, had some success with books. But I think we're going through a really interesting paradigm in the, the book selling industry, where you have a lot of people that have previously written books that were traditionally published are now publishing themselves. And not just publishing themselves, but then also going through this huge transition of instead of maybe largely looking to sell paperback books, a lot of people are selling digitally and selling things online and it's more so moving towards ebooks. Even though I think the cachet of being an author and having written a book is still in the paperback books and it might not carry over to someone that has never sold a paperback book. If you've only sold, it might not count in the same way or carry the same weight. But I do think... I'm from what I'm seeing, it's like the majority of books that are being sold are not physical anymore. Yeah, and I think that for the the wide sort of the vast number or I think for most people, a book is a book. Even if you put like a thirty page Kindle up there, uh, a lot of people are like, Oh, you wrote a book. Which is I mean, I, I and you did. Uh, what we've decided books were in the past has has come along with certain parameters that you know i guess if we go back to there used to be scribes so it had to be worth somebody or you had the resources for somebody to write this by hand on like a bunch of sheepskin maybe some papyrus i brought it up from egypt to europe where a lot of this was happening and then gutenberg developed the press and then, I mean, you, you still needed quite a bit of money and resources for something to get published, and certain institutions had more money and resources than others, and that was happening. And, and so up until recently, well, we've had traditional publishers, and if you're going to publish a book, well, it might as well, it's going to cost this much to even begin to publish it. And so it's got to be about, uh, you have to be able to sell it for about this price, and people kind of want it to be a certain length and so it's 200 some pages so now you've got a whole bunch of oh this should have been a blog post but it's a 250 page book i think rather than it should have been a blog post it should have been a 30 page book pamphlets uh used to be really uh important they spurred a lot of different revolutions people sharing ideas thomas paine's common sense being you know the probably best-selling pamphlet Ever And they were often funded by their authors and they would be sold on a newsstand for a few pennies and they would get ideas out there and they were short. And I think blogs were supposed to be sort of the replacement for the pamphlet. But then we ran into this issue with the economics of a blog. Turns out it's not free and it's not necessarily super easy to maintain a blog or a website. You've got to deal with a lot of different things like spam and keeping paying for your hosting fees and all that stuff. And so if you're putting free content out there, how are you getting how are you making that worth your while? Some people put ads all over the blogs, and that obviously sucks because you can't read most websites unless it's in reader mode. 
And then other people say, well, I'm just going to put a, a pop over and collect emails and uh, have some $1,200 course that I'll just try to funnel some small percentage of my people into. But those economics lend themselves to certain types of things. If you're going to buy a $1,200 course, it better be pretty specific and help you do a specific thing that somebody knows how to do that is going to hopefully in turn then make you some money. So it's not really a good place, I think, for like sharing an idea or saying, here's how I think about this thing. Or I've spent years thinking about this one little obscure topic and here's my new way of thinking about it. It's not, the economics don't really support that. But I think that a, a book or a pamphlet is a pretty honest exchange. I mean, obviously, um, not perfectly honest exchange. People generally want to read books that, that don't challenge their beliefs, that perhaps reinforce their beliefs. There's all sorts of things like that. But generally, it's okay. Here's this idea that I've packaged up, and you're going to pay some money for it. And I'm going to get a little bit of that money. And so I feel like that is a, a lot better relationship for trying to figure out what is really worth being said or, or, or worth hearing. And so I'm a big advocate of write 30-page books, 50-page books. I've got several of them. Some of them have been total flops. I wrote a book entirely about the font papyrus and why, despite everybody hating it, maybe they shouldn't be so concerned about it. And that I've spent a lot of time on and hasn't done too well. I've written another book, a 75-page one on digital Zettelkasten, which is this note-taking system that has this cult following, which is incredibly powerful. And it's been this surprise hit. When I'm making all these foreign rights deals and getting checks for thousands of dollars for this book that took me a couple months to write. And at the same time, I write my magnum opi, like things like mind management, not time management, which are kind of like years and years, maybe a decade in, in the making and thinking about the ideas that go in them and then finally writing them into some some kind of form. So I think that the floodgates of are open, but people haven't necessarily noticed yet that you could write an idea in 500 words right now and go to kdp.amazon.com and make a cover with the cover generator and upload a book today, and it would have the exact same screen real estate as War and Peace. Whether there's a paper version of it or not, think about that. In a bookstore... On the bookshelf, War and Peace stands out because it's really thick. <laughs> and a pamphlet, you can't even pr print the title on the side of it or on the spine of it. So I think that's exciting. I would encourage people to write short books, experiment with it, and maybe while they're at it, write some of the longer books too. I think the connecting threads between the last two topics we just talked about is actually something that you and I had a, a short discussion about on Twitter, or I was asking you about, which is about Michelangelo. And I would love to hear you share some of this story because I found it so interesting, this idea that he kind of created, the perception by which we know him by was very intentionally curated, much in the same way that people curate their personas online. 
Ah, so the, the sort of personal branding aspects of Michelangelo. So Michelangelo was known as the divine one in his lifetime, which is pretty good uh, branding when most of your clients are popes. It's a good idea to brand yourself that way. And he, there's evidence that he sort of curated that image. He certainly let his clients know that he worked very hard. That that's what he would say when he wanted to get payment. But he also had this mystique about him where he would want it to look like it was very easy. You know, he worked in secrecy on the David and then just had this unveiling and everybody was just so stunned by it and, you know, became a hot issue in Florence about where are we going to put this statue? There were protesters, like people throwing rocks and stuff over about where are we going to put this amazing statue? And he also, before he died, as he was on his deathbed, the last couple of weeks of his life, he had all of his process work burned, had his assistants burn his process work. Why would he do that? Well, maybe because he didn't want people to know what the process looked like, how hard it actually was to make that work happen. And also there's that famous quote where people say, oh, when, when Michael, people ask the Michelangelo, how did you uh, carve the David? And uh, he said, uh, well, you know, I, I just, just noticed we've got two Davids talking here. I just removed all the parts of the marble that weren't David. And I've never been able to find anywhere that was proof that he said that, but it does buy into this idea of effortlessness, this mystique that he created. So th those are a little bit of the, the thoughts on the branding of Michelangelo. Yeah, sure. I mean, we can get to that. But I think even that then maybe connects to, in terms of, okay, he's burning his stuff and hiding a lot of the hard work. I think that is pretty much how you got to your second book, right? Where you were revealing maybe some of the hard work that went into writing your first book and being able to manage your time and being able to cultivate that process. I, I know that writing books obviously sounds hard and, and is hard, but even in general, I, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And that's probably why productivity as an industry is so popular at the moment. And probably why your Zettelkasten book is, is taking off. A lot of people are getting into personal knowledge management tools like Notion. I've been getting everyone into Notion, my sister, everyone, everyone that knows me, I'm getting them all to use it. So I'd love to know maybe how, how that process was. And then we can get into some of the things you talk about in time management. Yeah, I, I think that in this more participatory electronic media environment that I, like I was talking about, I mean, isn't, isn't it interesting? We can You can go on a podcast, you can listen to comedians talk about how they come up with their jokes or their sets. Well, you couldn't do that before. It was just, okay, like here's Eddie Murphy, like... And you would just watch the thing and you never know, have no idea how it ever, how it came to be. It just like, looked like he was just really funny and that was how it happened. But it's all photoshopped is what I've been saying lately. It's all photoshopped. We hear people talk about maybe an Instagram model or something. Oh, it's photoshopped. Like she doesn't really look like that in real life. And then they share the picture of, you know, the non-photoshopped photo or whatever. First of all, is a photo a an objective representation of reality it's not it never is um it's a photograph but we get to see that process but we don't get to see that or we're starting to get to see that for some other things that amazing comedy hour that we saw like that was hundreds of open mic bombs that before that person finally arrived at that and that this book that you're reading word after word in a way that flows 
that wasn't necessarily the way that it was that it was written. And that was something that I had to learn in writing my first book, where I thought, well, maybe I could just take the number of words that the book needs to be and divide it by the number of days I have to write the book and just write 300 words a day. And next thing you know, I have a book like that can sometimes work. I think it works better with certain ideas than it does with others. But when you're trying to trying to search for a new idea, it doesn't really work that way. And that's what I talked about in mind management, not time management, which was that struggle of trying to write my first book and spending those 12 hours a day banging my head against the wall thinking, well, how, why can't I get a good sentence out here? And it, and it took me so long to realize that, no, it's not about getting this good sentence out here. It's about getting a whole bunch of really terrible sentences out and then going back over it later to make them look like good sentences. Yeah, I completely get that. And I think this applies to, obviously, I write as well. And one of the things I do want to ask you about is your writing process. I think you write daily and that's a, that a practice I've tried to cultivate. But I think for a lot of people do struggle with creativity or creative output, regardless of whether it's they're trying to write a book or they're just trying to put something out there. And I think a lot of people have huge blockers to that. I think I was hearing you talk about, oh, that you use like a typewriter and you use some offline tools to write. And I think I have a similar practice and I find it so strange that the biggest unlock, so probably the, if I want to write something and it absolutely has to go out, I have this really ugly, just really bad and crappy notebook that has the worst paper in the world. And I've had it for years and years. It's actually... I think less than half of the original notebook because at one point it fell apart. So this is just what is left, what I've managed to keep and recover over the years. And it's so bad that it makes it so easy to write. And it's weird because part of, okay, cultivating my habit of writing regularly was writing in a notebook. And I got these really nice lectern notebooks and I write in them regularly and I do use those. And that is great for getting ideas out of my mind. And I find that writing actually helps things to flow because writing forces you to slow down because when you're typing, it's very easy to type almost as fast as you can think. And you start typing all kinds of random stuff, but when you write, it does force you to slow down. You have to be a lot more considerate with what you put down, but then going down even a level from there, I find that very often when I'm writing in my nice notebook, there's a, almost a mental barrier that what I write has to be good because now it's going to be semi-permanent. Like it's written down and I'm not going to tear pages out of this. Whereas when I write in my really just shoddy notebook, I don't care. And I am going to throw this away. No one's ever going to see it. I'm never going to care. No one's ever going to care. It doesn't matter what my writing looks like. It doesn't matter what my thoughts look like. Things can be jumbled about, but it helps me get things out. And I wonder how that lands with you and maybe some of your other thoughts on being able to get things out creatively as well. Yeah, I think with notebooks, there's two strategies. The, um, one is, hey, get yourself a really nice expensive notebook with really nice paper and uh, a really nice pen. And that will help you learn that your ideas are really valuable. But also get a notebook that's just the crappiest paper with the cheapest pen possible. And that will remind you that ideas are a dime a dozen. And that relieving of pressure is, I think, a lot behind a lot of the tools that I use for writing. I've got a typewriter over my shoulder. Don't know if people can see it or not. 
1953 Smith Corona Super. I absolutely love it. I really do ride on it very, very often. And the thing that I love about it is that as I'm riding it, there's no fooling myself. This is a draft. There is nothing I can do that will turn this into something that I can just press publish on. I even tried the OCR technology on uh, iPhone, and thankfully it does not work, which is kind of strange because the typewriter is a mechanically reproduced letters. You would think it would be able, it's pretty consistent. You'd think it would be able to do that. So the typewriter, I've got another th- another thing called an AlphaSmart, which is a portable word processor that I write on and often delete things. I've got these little whiteboards that I keep write things on and then I erase them because really it's not about the thing that you're, the product that you're producing a lot of the times. It's about the thought processes that are happening. And I really like to work on something iterate on it over and over and over again, where I just am writing it. I'm writing the first draft. And then the next day or a week later, I, I sit down and I write about the same thing without even looking at the first draft. And it's just, wh- what's the what's the best way to say this thing that feels most natural to me right now? Uh, I I love the ideas of you know, Homer's work of like the, the Iliad or or the Odyssey, these things that came from oral traditions where there were storytellers who were traveling around and they were telling stories by just speaking them. And maybe they would change the story based upon the place that they were at. But I think over time that probably like made the stories that much more interesting because when you try to recall something from nothing, then you just end up with whatever is the most interesting and the most engaging. And so that's what I try to do with writing is just put a lot of crap out there, publishing out there sometimes, but get it down on paper, let it incubate in my mind, and then and then get back to it. It's a far more, I think that's a far more efficient process to getting that crisp writing that you're looking for. And that's what I found in writing my first book. And that's what I talk about in mind management, not time management is this passive genius, this incubation that takes place in our minds. We know as a culture, because we have expressions such as, oh, sleep on it, that our mind has a way of working on our problems when we're not actively working on it. But how often do we actually do that in our actual projects? You'd be amazed what can happen if as you're waiting to get into the dentist's chair, you just take a minute to open up a notes app on your phone and brainstorm a couple points about some blog post that you want to write, for example. And then, you know, maybe the next day, maybe later that afternoon, maybe a week later, you sit down and write it and, huh, it just comes out a little bit better, a little bit more crisp than it would have had you not taken that couple minutes to write about that. Well, because... Your brain was working on it when you weren't actively working on it. Yeah, I love that. That fits in perfectly with something that I do as well, even just as you were saying it. So taking notes regularly and writing things down all the time, even when you're not intentionally planning to write something right now. And I think that's probably been the biggest unlock for me with my writing. And people have asked, oh, how do you think of all these things to write regularly? And it's, I mean, I kind of don't or as i'm reading things and as i'm collecting information i'm thinking okay how could i 
maybe write this or what are my thoughts on this? And I'm connecting the dots with other things that I write. And I can talk a bit more about that in a second, but in terms of how I make notes. So I, in my notion dashboard, I just have this concept of velocity and it's like the velocity of an idea. And it's imagine you start off with some, a rock on a hill of snow. And as it rolls down, it collects more and more snow and the snowball grows bigger and it, it gains more velocity as it goes down. And by the time it gets to the bottom, it's this huge thing. And that is what you eventually publish. And so it kind of mirrors that where I have a ratings. It's rated between one and five, but I only really use one, three and five. So I don't rate anything a two and I don't rate anything a four. And what that forces me to do is, so what I call a one, a velocity of one is just bullet points, like just an idea that came to me. It could be one line, it could be three lines, but it's literally just bullet points and it doesn't mean anything. And then a three is like a few sentences at least. So now maybe I've got a structure of what I want to write about. And it, this could also then go into like a few paragraphs, but it's, there is something there. And I kind of have an idea of exactly what this is and what the structure would look like. And then a five is like a few paragraphs. So now I actually have some meat on the bones and usually, so then when I actually want to come and write something to publish. So for example, it could be a Sunday afternoon. And I need to send a newsletter out on Monday and I have no idea what I'm going to write. I can just go and start with the fives. And those are things that already have a few paragraphs in them. I haven't done anything more than that. I haven't thought about anything more than that, but because I've set that as the baseline of what that's going to be, then I can just look at those things. Or sometimes I don't like any of those ideas and I can just go to the threes. And those are all things that at least there's a few sentences. And so I think because also, so the intentionality and in skipping two and four is that it forces me to go up to the limit of the next level. So if I've only got one word or like one line, I have to get it up to a few sentences to change it from a one to a three. Otherwise it's still a one. So if I then get a framework of what I would write, then it can be a three. And it's only going to go from a three to a five if it's now like at least two or three paragraphs. Yeah, you could you can filter by it's almost like you can filter by what your energy level is in a moment. How much time, attention, focus do I have in this moment to develop an idea? I can develop the ideas that are further developed or maybe I'm feeling a little bit more scatterbrained and it's a good time to like think a little bit more about the ideas that need some more development. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, it it gives me some freedom to know that if I only have an idea, then at least it's something. And I know that that can ladder up to something else, but there's no expectation that I need to sit down and write several paragraphs. I could sit down and, and write just a sentence on this thing. And that's fine because I know that next time I can pick that up and progress that a little bit more. Yeah. The book that I'm working on right now, or the one of the magnum opi I'm working on right now is a book about finishing and about follow through. And I've come to realize that we often hold ourselves to the wrong standards of follow through and our ability to finish something. And I think it has a lot to do with what problems it is that we're trying to solve. David Gallinson is this economist from UChicago who found these two different patterns of creators, the experimental creators and the conceptual creators. And the experimental creators are the ones who are always experimenting, always searching for this new idea 
and they might spend their entire lives doing it. Whereas the conceptual creators are the ones who have an idea and they just want to execute that idea. And as it turns out, the conceptual creators do the more influential work of their career when they're very young, whereas the experimental creators get more and more influential as as time goes on. So the archetypal example is Picasso was conceptual. He did some really influential work, did his most influential work when he was 26, lived to be in his 90s and didn't do a lot that was super significant for most of his late life. And then Cezanne is the classic experimental creator who did his most influential work in his very last year when he was 67 years old because he was constantly experimenting, constantly trying to figure out how can I represent on the canvas the thing that I'm seeing as I look at a landscape and then I look at the canvas, how do I represent that? And there are two very different approaches that you can find in a lot of things where Cezanne saw the work that he did as uh, part of the process. He would like abandon his paintings in fields because, well, he already learned what he wanted from doing that painting. And Picasso would hold on to all of his work and kind of say, well, you know, history will decide whether this is a influential work or not. And I think about like Leonardo da Vinci, who is the probably the, the most famous procrastinator of all time, who finished maybe less than fewer than a dozen paintings in his life, never even finished the Mona Lisa, was just crippled by his inability to follow through on projects. But when you look at what he was doing, when you look at the questions he was asking, the problems he was trying to solve, what he was trying to develop, of course he didn't finish it, finish these things, because what he was trying to do was impossible. He wasn't even trying for photorealism. Photographs didn't exist. He was trying to understand how did people perceive. He studied optics. He studied anatomy, did dissections until his stomach was turning, and, you know was trying to represent the world very realistically and made a lot of advances in things like perspective. Michelangelo, to some extent, but Michelangelo sort of brute forced his way into being able to finish things. He left a lot of things unfinished. But here's what happens, though, is that these conceptual creators, people like Picasso, took a lot from what Cezanne had blazed the trail with. And then Raphael was the great master of the high renaissance who basically went and looked at what Leonardo and Michelangelo did and said, oh, hey, I can do that. And just was able to stand on their shoulders and execute very, very well. And he was very suave. He was a great networker, very gregarious and was able to execute. And so I think it's useful sometimes to ask yourself, what are the problems that I'm trying to solve in this work that I'm trying to turn into something? Because sometimes it's just such an open-ended question that, yeah, of course it's going to be hard. Of course it's going to take time for you to figure this thing out. And I like to play with both modes where I've got books I'm writing where I'm trying to discover something. I have no idea what I'm going to find exactly. I've got just some basic theory. And then maybe some shorter things where I'm like, I know exactly how this process works. I'm just going to top down, explain it, you know, inductive uh, versus deductive. I also like to call it the angel or the expert, where the angel is, I've just been through this. I'm going to show you what I 
have fresh on the tip of my brain because I just learned it. And then the expert, which is, I've got a lot of experience on this. I'm going to tell you exactly how it's done. And uh, I think some of us are experimental creators and it behooves us to recognize that. And uh, we can certainly design our workflow in ways that are a lot more friendly to our particular styles of approaching ideas. Where do you think success comes from as a creator? So what you were just saying, it made me think of, I mean, I guess there's two sides of the, the concept. It's the curiosity to start and the consistency to finish. And a lot of the examples you were sharing made me think of another artist that you didn't mention, which is Van Gogh or Van Gogh. And what I find really interesting about him is that he was like really bad. He was not good at, at painting to start. And even when he, he died, he was also not a famous painter at that time. He only got a lot of the fame that he had long after he was, he was gone. And, but during his time, I mean, I think he originally started as he tried to become a pastor and he got fired from that because he wasn't very good. Then he tried to become a, a teacher and he got fired from that because he wasn't very good. And then he started painting or drawing. Actually, I think he came across a book that was teaching you how to draw. And he also wasn't very good at that, but no one can fire from, no one can fire you from just playing with pencils. So he continued and people mocked him, I think at first, because again, his drawings weren't that good, but he kept going. And by the time that he died, I think people don't even fully conceptualize how young and how short the time span of everything that he created was because he died in his thirties and he didn't start until he was 27. So it was a really short condensed time frame. And I think by the time that he died, he created about 900 paintings and drawings and then lots of other sketches as well. And what I love about that example is just that his greatness and everything that he learned just came from being super consistent over time and just continuing to create and continuing to pump things out and churn things out. But on the flip side, some of the people that you've just mentioned, I think it was Da Vinci as an example that were incredibly meticulous and had all of this thought going into everything that they created to the extent that they didn't really finish a ton of things, but there is still greatness there. There's still success there in what they were able to create despite that. And so I'm really interested to know how you think of that balance in creativity and output and success where on one hand, maybe it could just be brute forcing things and just by being prolific, you can end up being good. Or you could take the approach that by being incredibly intentional, uh, and this maybe goes to what I think it's Malcolm Gladwell refers to as deliberate practice, where it's not just about the number of hours that you do something for, but also the way that you use that time and having that process of deliberate practice and intentionality about exactly how you work and exactly how you create the output is what really matters. Yeah. So how can a creator be successful is, I think that there's no answer to the question. I think that there's a way to go about it that might improve a person's odds. I do think that there's a lot of randomness to it. I do think that people will often times though hide behind this idea of survivorship bias. They maybe hear some advice that somebody gives and they say, well, you didn't hear from all the people who tried that same thing and didn't succeed. Like, yeah, of course, idiot, because this isn't something that you're guaranteed success in no matter what you do. Like, that's the whole idea. If you want to be guaranteed success, 
go to HVAC school and they'll tell you exactly how to repair HVAC and you'll have a secure job. And it's great. Thank goodness for HVAC people or plumbers or whatever, where they know how this is done. This is what you're trying to do is impossible. What you're trying to do has no guarantees to it. And so you can't necessarily dismiss an idea or a way of go of doing things based upon the fact that some people are going to do it and, and not succeed. But the way that I try to think of things is the barbell strategy. I try to think about myself as like a capital allocator. I only have so many resources. I only have so much time. I only have so much energy. Where am I at right now? And where do I need to get to be able to continue to experiment? And what can I do to protect my downside so that I have some level of security? And then what are the different ideas I can try that will maybe not take a ton of effort, or but that will give me an opportunity for something to happen? And I think that we live in a great world for that because it's so interconnected. You know, you can like, you could just go like blah, 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 and put it out on uh, t- TikTok and you'll have like 30 million views. Now... Is that going to be lasting success? Are you guaranteed it? Certainly not. It's very unlikely it's going to happen. And would you have lasting success if that happens? Probably, probably, probably not. Uh, we've certainly seen like a lot of people who've just sort of randomly gotten famous for something and they've like tried to milk it somehow and it just doesn't really work out so well. It's got to be based uh, upon something. But uh, I try to look at it as you know what's interesting to me. What sort of little projects can I continue to put out there and ship? where I'm at least like getting a chance for something to happen. And every time I have a winner, I just try to put that into keeping myself secure so I can continue to explore. As Walt Disney said, we don't make movies to make money. We make money so we can make more movies. Uh, I think there's a lot of these practical concerns for a lot of us who, you know, it's like when you read like the, the Daily Rituals book by Mason Curry, great book but they're all like oh yeah so-and-so's servant would you know give him coffee in the morning and that you know they would do everything like just basically all this landed gentry in aristocratic england or something who didn't have to do anything and didn't have to worry about whether they were successful enough to make enough money to keep doing what they're doing so i think that's like a very real consideration for a lot of people is like what's going to make money but at the same time what is interesting to me and sometimes those things can be at odds in a way because the thing that will that seems most guaranteed to get you that little bit of security is going to be the thing that has the least likelihood of getting you any sort of stratospheric success so i like to just try to catch myself anytime i have like a wacky idea that I think, ah, it's not going to work. I don't have the time to do that. And I try to make space for more of those things and try to do few of the things that are the sure bets. But that's been like, I've had to kind of earn that over time. You know, early on it was, okay, I need freelance work. Okay, I need passive income. Okay, now I need to sell this course. I need to sell this book. And now I'm starting to get that snowball going a little bit where I can experiment. But then that becomes difficult to do because if you have one thing that you can do that you're pretty sure is going to succeed because you've built up the snowball, well, you're going to stop doing the behavior that got you to where you were in in the first place. And so I think that it is trying to find what works, but then when you find what works, doing just enough of it 
to be able to find what works again and not clinging on to the thing that worked in the past. If it matters to you that you get to continue to be curious and continue to explore. If it does not, then by all means, you know, juice it for all it's worth. Yeah. What you were saying just reminded me of, I I loved the quote that you shared about, was it Walt Disney? Walt Disney that said, we don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies. And it reminds me of, I was just looking at Jeff Bezos and it's funny, a lot of people hate on him now about wanting to go to space and he's entering this space race and loads of people are like, oh my gosh, this is just a clear sign of hubris that, you know, you're this billionaire and all you care about is, you know, escaping this planet and going to space. But people don't even realize this guy, when he was in college, was the captain of his space society. And this is clearly something he has loved and cared almost solely about his entire life. And if you go back, you can see early interviews of him specifically saying that, you know, he wants to go and build colonies, colonies in space, etc. And he needs to become really wealthy in order to do that. And so you look now, and obviously he's a billionaire, he's one of the richest people in the world. And it's very clear that obviously I'm sure he didn't have a meticulous plan of exactly how it was going to work out. He was clearly optimizing for his original He was clearly optimizing for his original goal of doing this one thing. And he's found a way to be able to to bring that to bear. Yeah, you sort of stumble your way towards it. Yeah, I used to agree with those people about Mars, but I've I've since changed my mind about that. I could see the point uh, in going now. But yeah, it it is. It's like, sorry, what was that? I was saying, what changed your mind? I read uh, Tim Urban's whole Elon Musk blog series which is available on kindle i can't read blogs hardly i'm like the only time i read a blog is like if i save it to like epub dot press and i send it to my kindle and i actually get a chance to like sit down and read it so i like bought on kindle his blog post series on elon musk and i used to be of the opinion like ah fuck mars like we got a lot of problems going on in the united states it's just going to create another divide between like the have and have not and now I understand, like, no matter how we as humans comport ourselves, at some point there will be an extinction event and humanity will be wiped out if we're not backed up to another planet. Now, I'm not 100% sold on that is an imperative that, you know, I think it would suck if humanity was wiped out, but I think that I'm a human. Like, <laughs> well, you know, so we would certainly lose a lot of progress, but I can see the perspective. Yeah, so I want to take a step back and go back to something else that you mentioned just previously as well, just maybe as one of the last things, which I think can give you some chance to get more into the mind management aspect. I'm really interested to know what you're optimizing for. Let's say between consistency and asymmetry, which are two of the things that we've talked about previously. Consistency being you know, writing regularly. I think you still have never missed an issue of your Monday newsletter that you sent out. I don't know if you've missed one recently, but I know that you've been sending that out really consistently over time. But then on the other side, some of your biggest wins and opportunities have come from completely asymmetric moments and finding a moment where you're able to write a book and and another book and being able to have these (laughs) not lucky strikes, but being able to bet intentionally on a single thing and having that drive some outsized success compared to everything else that you were doing. Yeah, I think of it as a uh, the asymmetry maybe is comes I think probably consistency 
first because I like to, tr- I guess I trust that if I continue to write every day, write even when I don't feel like it, write even the ideas that I think are dumb, which I don't always do and I wish I was better at, over time I'll hopefully gain the courage to start to see more of these asymmetric, wacky ideas. You know, I've got a file, it's just like weird ideas and there's stuff on there that, you know, I kind of want to do, but I feel like it's never going to work. But I just think that over over time, I'll I hopefully will get better at that, and I'll hopefully get better at writing. And I have been thinking a little bit about though that as I get consistent, maybe today's work is too much like yesterday's work. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I had a friend recently say, "Hey, you know, I really like your writing. I really like." There's two pieces that I always share with people, and one was a blog post called "Permission to Suck." And then another one is a blog post about what I call mini lives or just like going and living in a place for a couple months or a month or whatever. And I was like, okay, it'd be nice if the things that you liked best were anything from the last eight years (laughs) since I've, you know, like really doubled down on writing like six years ago. So it sort of made me think, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be consistent. Maybe I should be a little bit more wacky and, and wait for inspiration like I used to. But Right now, that's that's my general thing is just keep shipping. Don't be afraid of the ideas that you don't think are going to work. At least get them out there and give them a chance and rinse and repeat. And if I'm lucky, I've got another 20, 30, 40 years for things to come from that. Yeah. And how do you cultivate your the curiosity that goes into the output? Because I know that you talk about crumb time and some of the ways that you you manage your time in those ways. I'd love to know more about that. Ah, crumb time. Yes, I'd love to talk about crumb time. That's sort of my new pet theory. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about crumb time. These these little bits of time of uncertain or undefined size and shape that sort of pop up throughout our days. We're waiting for a friend at, at a restaurant. You're waiting to get into a dentist's appointment. You're waiting in line at the airport. And uh, what do we usually do? We open up our phones, we look on Instagram, we look on TikTok, we look on Twitter. And so I've lately been trying to make a lot better use of my crumb time. And, you know, I deleted those apps, I blocked those websites on my phone. And now my phone is just like, it's sort of dead. You know, there's like, there's nothing I can really do on it that's, you know, going to be this fun waste of time thing or playing wordle playing wordle is like that's actually like quite a bit of i tried it out it's like actually quite a bit of cognitive effort to play wordle like the amount of time and effort that it takes to play wordle you could totally write a book like there's uh kirsten oliphant she wrote an entire book like in two weeks on the treadmill like on her phone like wrote an entire book you know she's like a mother, very busy, was trying to like get back into the rhythm of things, just wrote a whole book on her phone. I th- try to think of how to, how to make good use of this crumb time. And one of these ways that I do is through something I call a system of curiosity management. Because I'm one of these people, I don't know what's wrong with me, but like ever since I was little, like I loved Encyclopedia Brown. I loved the books. I loved the show with Fred Savage in it. I loved this idea of just like being super smart and knowing a lot of things. And I don't know if that's necessarily like a healthy thing to aspire to, but it's somehow important to me in in some way. And so I'm somebody who always feels like I should be writing 
something. I always feel like I should be reading something. If I'm going to watch a movie, it should be like a historical movie. It's going to teach me something about history. Or if I'm going to watch a documentary, I better learn something. And the documentary better have substance. Otherwise, I'm just going to read the Wikipedia page. And I've came, come to real. I've started to ask myself, like, where's this urge coming from? And when I searched myself very deeply, I came to realize, well, some of this urge to continue consuming content is a feeling that I just haven't gotten enough. And it's not. It's very much like when you feel very busy and you feel like you're not being productive enough, and it's really just a result of anxiety about the things that you. Of not feeling like you're on top of everything, you know, you you do getting things done, and you suddenly feel on top of everything, and you suddenly feel light and free, and you feel in control of things, and then suddenly you're all right with maybe lying in a hammock for a little while. Now, what's that? How does that come to your 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 intellectual life? The things that you're you're curious about? Do you ever feel like, oh, you know, I know enough about this. I know enough about all the things. No, you don't really. And I came to realize, well, maybe if I had a system for managing this curiosity, I wouldn't have that sort of feeling of not enoughness. And so I've started to do that, keeping uh, what I call my crumb time list of things that I'm curious about. And there's three levels of curiosity. There's cursory curiosity, which is that you're just kind of want to scratch the surface about it. Maybe, you know, you're wondering, you know, I don't know very much about Marie Curie. I, I want to know something about Marie Curie. And that's cursory curiosity. There's compulsory curiosity, which is, you know, everybody keeps talking about TikTok. Like, I, I just want to know something about TikTok. What is the big deal? And so there's compulsory. You sort of feel com like you should know something about this. And then there's uh, compulsive curiosity, which is like, oh, I want to know everything there is about how to make soap. Like, it's just so fascinating to me, the chemistry of it. And I just want to know everything there is about how to make soap. And so um, if you actually start to categorize these things and start to make a list of the things that are either cursory or compulsory curiosity, instead of thinking, hmm, I'd like to know something about Marie Curie and going straight to Amazon and buying a book about Marie Curie, which is what I used to do, I'll put, you know, read about Marie Curie on my crumb time list. And then when I've got a few minutes and I can't go to Twitter and I can't go to Instagram and I can't go to TikTok, I go to my crumb time list and I look up the Wikipedia page on Marie Curie and I read a few things and I think, Oh, okay. Now I know something about this person. Do I want to go re read a whole book about her right now? No, I'm not at that point. It's possible. Maybe I will arrive at that point, but now I can move it down to the second level list where maybe I want to drill deeper later or something. But I've got that list of things that I have that moment where I'm curious about it. And I would normally just like go all in and then not only get tired of the subject, but then also feel like, oh, there's all these other things I'm not getting to. Now I actually have a way to manage that. And I do that through curiosity management, my crumb time list, and I make good use of my crumb time. One of the ways I make good use of my crumb time. That's awesome. I find it really interesting, even just thinking about that and thinking that over time, for example, like historically, as screen time has gone up, our attention spans have gone down. And if you look at, I think now, people can barely concentrate for more than 15 minutes, but simultaneously we're watching and consuming more than we ever have. 
So we're consuming much smaller chunks of lots more stuff. And people just bounce around between different forms of dopamine and different forms of content. And we can never get enough of it, but we never actually stop or have some intention about what we curate and how. And it was funny, I was looking at a study the other day about the fact that humans now, we, can, we can't even sit alone with our thoughts and we can barely have time to ourselves. And I think during this study, basically you give people the option of sit alone with your thoughts or give yourself a mild electric shock. They're going to pick the electric shock and yeah, yeah. <laughs> they want to get out of that situation because no one wants to have to sit there. Well, yeah, and it doesn't really add up to anything. And this is one of the reasons why I like this idea of crumb time is that we think of crumbs as insignificant, but they actually do add up to something. Bakers talk about something called a crumb structure. That's the crumb structure of like air and pastry that makes up a cake. Or in agriculture, there's the crumb structure. Uh, a soil has a achieved a crumb structure when it beads into kind of crumbs and that is a good environment for holding the right amount of moisture, the right amount of nutrients is a good uh, environment for for the different microorganisms that need to be present in the soil for plants to thrive, for roots to grow and to be fed. And I find that you can do that if you are intentional about how you use your crumb time. Now, I've talked about how I use curiosity management during my crumb time, but I also use my Zettelkasten during my crumb time. And it's really better than Twitter or TikTok or Instagram. My, my favorite crumb time activity for my Zettelkasten is basically I read all my books on Kindle. One of the things that had to happen when I moved to Columbia is I've got to read electronic books, which turns out to be really great, actually. Read all of my books on Kindle. I use Readwise, and I export the highlights when I'm done with a book to uh, Markdown. So I just have a text file just of all the highlights. So I've got a text file of all the most interesting things of a book that I've read. And so if I've got a few minutes and I'm like waiting at a restaurant, I can just open up that text file and go through it and read those highlights and then highlight or bold even the most interesting of the most interesting. And then when I get interrupted, I just mark my place. And I literally, I can... I can do something productive if I have five seconds or five minutes or 15 minutes. And that's what crumb time is sometimes. You don't always know how much time you actually have, which is part of why we surrender it. We give it up to social media companies that we give up all that extra time and attention and it could build up into something. Like you literally, through reading highlights in that way, through maybe, you know, writing uh, drafts of tweets that you later schedule, you could literally build into writing an entire book with the same time and energy that people spend playing Wordle every day. Yeah, I love that. I'm actually going to, I'm definitely going to steal that idea though, because I, so I usually don't highlight, I just write notes. So I will open up a doc near the beginning of a book. That's how I know it's going to be a, a good book is where I get that prompt very early on that I need to open up just a, a notion page on my phone. And so as I'm listening, usually to audiobooks or as I'm reading, then I'll just be making notes as I'm going along. But I haven't developed the main prompt for me to review my notes is writing. And I think that's where the positive aspect comes in for me is that, okay, now when I want to write something, I can go and look at these different notes pages and combine them into something that I want to talk about. But I'm not maybe using my crumb time 
in the most effective way. And part of that is just because I have all these apps that I probably should also get rid of, but there's the persistent worry that you're going to miss everything and asteroids will fall out of the sky and you're not going to see it because everyone's going to tweet about it and you, and you don't have Twitter. So there's that part that I need to get out of the way. But I think, yeah, this intentionality of being able to review notes, being able to review highlights or, and I think you have also mentioned this is not consuming things at the time at which you originally want to consume them. And I do that with articles. So I would just like save things and come back and read them later. But I think that's also like a really crucial point of intentionality is that there's going to be stuff you could read all the time. There's going to be things you could consume all the time, but instead of reading mm -hmm. them and just mindlessly scrolling, you could say, okay, this is interesting. I'm going to save it for later and not read it now. And then later when you have the time and you can make time for it, then you can go back through those things. Yeah. When I find something that I want to read, I just save it. And fortunately, I'm, I'm somebody who I can't stand to say read on my computer or read things on the web in general. And I don't, I don't use a read later app in part because it just makes it too easy to save things that I want to read. Like that's not the problem. The problem isn't capturing the things that you want to read. The problem is actually finding the time and mental energy to read the things. So I just use a text file often, like I said, that crumb time list or I just will save things in a bookmark folder and then I'll send them to EPUB press on my Kindle and, you know, get to it eventually usually, which I maybe I would miss out on some web stuff in, in that way. But I think that, you know, it, and, and like a diet, sometimes you have a cheat day sometimes, or you've got a cheat block where maybe you give yourself 15 minutes after, after lunch to just browse Reddit or you give yourself an entire Friday afternoon to just do whatever the heck you want. But then the rest of the week, you're a lot more deliberate about that. That's the way I'm with Twitter now. I've got a rule. I won't tweet anything. Everything I tweet has to be scheduled at least 24 hours in advance. And I give myself like a couple opportunities to go to Twitter each day. And then on Friday afternoons, I can kind of do whatever I want. So finding ways to be intentional about... I mean, sort of harnessing your curiosity like a wild horse and aware taming it like a, like a wild horse. Like it's, it's got all this power to it and it can take you places, but you're not going to get to go into, go a particular direction if you don't gain a harmonious relationship with it. Yeah. I was going to ask you for like one more tip or hack or idea, but what I'm finding really interesting is that it seems like all of your ideas and maybe this is where the mind management aspect comes in, but they seem to be centered around making things harder rather than easier in mm. that. So for example, earlier on, you yeah. mentioned with the writing, so writing on a typewriter or on a different device and then copying it across later. And then the same with the crumb time, it's you're not reading things immediately, but you're going through this whole process of porting them out of whatever device you originally encountered it on to have some intentionality with how you consume it later. And so I'm interested to know, is that part of a, a wider philosophy or, or how you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I think I talked about grippy and slippy tools in my management, not time management, this idea that there are, uh, there are tools that are very powerful. A computer is a slippy tool. You can very quickly do whatever you want. You can be in the middle of writing and suddenly think, uh, oh, I wonder what's going on in the news. And then like with a couple flicks of your finger, you can be checking that stuff out. Whereas with a typewriter, it's a very grippy tool. I can only write with it. I'm not going to like look up some stuff. I can't get distracted really by the device. 
uh, itself. I think of it like, you know, if you were Superman or Superwoman and so he had x-ray vision, you wouldn't want x-ray vision all the time. Okay, that would be really distracting and at times it would be disgusting. Because you would see everybody naked, or maybe you would just see their bones, which would be, probably be gross too. And so why, why does your smartphone need to do everything? Why does your laptop need to do everything? And I've got certain devices which only do certain things. You know, I've got there's certain activities I just don't, you know, there's no Twitter that happens on my phone. Yeah, it can do Twitter. Every once in a while, like when I need to use the app or something, I'll download it, I'll do the thing, and then I'll delete it. Or I'll do that with Instagram. I've got a campaign going on or something like that. But my phone is not for those things. And yeah, my iPad, I mostly use that for writing, maybe a little bit of web surfing. And then every once in a while, and and, and I use it for some of my Zettelkasten tasks. And then every once in a while, I'm on my laptop. But I've got to be like really intentional about what have I come to this device for? What am I trying to do and how can I use that power towards doing the thing that I want to do because there's it's way too easy to do something other than the thing that I want to do. Uh, that's such a such a great idea. And I love that we got to that. And it's funny, what you say as grippy and sleepy tools, I mean, well done because I'm now going to have to refer to you a lot for that because that is a super that is such a simpler way of referring to something that i have been referring to but as um complementary competitive artifacts and competitive artifacts and even just saying that you can tell that is a it's a mouthful and i write about it yeah. a lot so grippy and slippy tools is much better but genuinely i I've, i was thinking about that earlier today the phone is a real competitive cognitive artifact and almost everything that it does it makes it easier to do things that you did before but so the, I'm not sure if you've uh, come across the term before, but the idea of cognitive artifacts in general is that they are things that you can use that help your brain in some way. But the difference is that complementary cognitive artifacts are things that by using them make you better even when you don't have them. So for example, walking or writing, writing particularly by hand. So as an example, writing by hand, particularly if you're writing in cursive, it helps parts of the brain as you're writing, but then also connects to like spatial parts of the brain because you're also having to think about how far apart you space the words mm -hmm. and things like that. Hmm. Walking is another one where you're not just having the respiratory activities, but you're helping increase your awareness as you're looking around and you're building a lot of other things there as well. The abacus is another one where you can become so good at the abacus that it helps you to do maths even when you don't have the abacus. Like you become so much faster because people that have mastered the abacus can visualize mm. it. And so they're building this entire area of their brain, which is visual spatial. And so they learn to visualize the abacus and that helps them do maths faster even when they don't have it. Oh, that's tool. interesting. So the point is there's a lot of things that we can use that actually make us better whether or not we have them. But there's a, a different set of things. A phone is one of them. A car is one of them. Where the more you use those things to do the same activities, it's not necessarily the worse you become. But if you don't have that thing, you can't do it. That is very interesting. It reminds me of, uh, I've heard somebody say that the reason they read paper books is because they can remember what part of the page a certain piece of information was on. So... What made me think about it was actually our previous conversation. So we were talking about 
I think you were talking about listening to audiobooks on on fast speed and how that can be useless. And I think for me, the benefit is when I'm making notes. I was thinking about why that works, right? Because it doesn't work with reading fiction. And the connection that I made is that they're both complementary co cognitive artifacts. So when I'm listening to fiction, or I'm walking, it's the act of walking that helps me to remember everything that I've read. And I can think back in my mind right now, and I can tell you exactly where I was where I when I read particular books. And the moment there was something great that was in the book, the, the image of where I was and what I was looking at is ingrained in my mind. So those two things are connected. I think there was a study about that for like uh, for studying in a certain classroom or, and then taking a test in the same classroom or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And then in the same way, on the flip side, by making notes as I'm reading nonfiction books, I'm also building that connection as well between the act of writing and the act of putting something down and what I'm listening to. And so I, again, I'm making a mental connection there. Whereas I think when you're not doing those things and you're just, whether it's like scrolling on your phone or doing something that is, is competitive in some way, then that becomes a hindrance and that reduces your ability to retain and enjoy what you're reading. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.